Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Manhattan with Toronto Raptors coach Nick Nurse. Nick, how are you? I'm good, Woj. Thanks I'll, for having me. Thanks for coming in. I want to start with a quiz. Can you name all of your jobs in order that you've had in coaching? Student assistant at Northern Iowa. Then I went to Darby, England as a player coach. Came back the next year and spent two years at Grandview College, a little NAIA school as head coach. Two years at the University of South Dakota. Two years at the Birmingham Bullets. One year at the Sun Air of Ostend in Belgium. Two years at the Manchester Giants. A year at the London Towers. Four or five years at the Brighton Bears. Four years at the Iowa Energy. Two years at the Rio Grande Valley Vipers. And this is my sixth year at Toronto. Yeah, well, I'll get to you. Once you get back to the States, I knew you gained momentum. <laughs> I knew you had to slow down a little bit. I skipped England. some of the summer stuff. There was a couple of USBL gigs yeah. in there. Yeah, and you, did forget, you, you and did forget Long the, Beach. How about the Oklahoma Storm yeah, in Oklahoma 2005? Storm, I cannot forget that. Me and Brian Gates, uh, three summers down there in Enid, Oklahoma. Awesome. Loved it down there. When you went to England, you went as a player coach, which was a pretty novel idea when you still wanted to play mm-hmm. and you wanted to be a coach. You go, okay, I'll, I'll go do it all. You figured, yeah, I'm going to go over there for a year or two, have some fun, play. And then I'll come back here and probably be college coach, right? Yeah. I mean, I was going to play, yeah. right? I was uh, kind of halfway through my year as a student assistant at Northern Iowa. I got a call from a team said, hey, we want you to play. And so I kind of got back in shape and that deal fell through. And then I was sitting there saying, well, geez, now I'm back in shape. I might as well try to see if I can go play and and uh, had a job offer in Germany and uh, Bonn, Germany. And then also this this little player coach gig in England didn't pay very much, but I knew I wanted to coach eventually. So I said, I'll, I'll give that player coach thing a, a shot. At that age and at that time when, you know, you had played at Northern Iowa and then legendary Eldon Miller ends up you know, people knew from Ohio State and was mm-hmm. one of the, the better coaches of his era. And he goes to Northern Iowa. And the thought was, I think, especially then, you, you get a grad assistant job at a college and then you probably get a full time assistant, maybe the third or fourth guy at another school. And you go and you sort of work up the ladder of, of colleges. I mean, was that the thought when you are at Northern Iowa before you go off to play? Yeah, I think. Um Woj, as I look back at it now, there was no doubt I was like going to be in a, a college basketball coach. You know, I think that's me and all my buddies were, were doing, you know, we were, we were going to get on the recruiting trail and figure out how to recruit. And, you know, we were working camps all summer, you know, week after week after week trying to learn how to coach and all, all those things. And, and I don't know, I just kind of always had this little, weird fascination I think with professional basketball which when I went to the University of South Dakota's when it kind of really hit me I was driving up to Sioux Falls to go to CBA games I was driving down to Omaha to watch CBA games I was recording every NBA game on television and watching them over and over and here I was coaching division two college basketball so there was something churning in my blood to, to get to the professional ranks I guess who is in Sioux Falls that you drive up and see who was there there well, Tommy Smith, uh, who works for the NBA and has for years, was the GM there. Flip Saunders was the coach. A lot of great players, yeah. Mike Tebow at the Omaha Racers was a, was a head coach at the Omaha Racers back then. Um, Tim Legler playing, you know, yeah, guy, Tim yeah, Legler, man, yeah. really, really great league back then. The, the CBA yeah, was, was amazing. It's funny, Legler and I had Legler on the podcast last year, and we were talking about. I mean, there was – I remember one of the first books on basketball I read as a kid was a book 
I think it was called Life on the Rim or Life on the Run. It was on the Albany Patroons. Mm -hmm. I think Tim Wilkin was the author. I think George Carl was the coach at Albany, and the team was like Dirk Minifield and like all guys you heard of. And it was a different – the G League is this very – it's like the Disneyland now, right? Of like those, like it's got like it's like Disney, yeah. right? It's very sanitized version. That was hard. It was a hardcore yeah. league. It was that was a camp, that was camping along the river, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? Compared to compared yeah. to what it is now, yeah, for sure. Great players though. Yeah, great players playing hard, fighting like heck. Talent, coaching talent. I was intrigued by watching the coaches in that league as well. There was. I don't know. I was interested in it for some reason. And, and I think especially the guys like you who coached, whether guys from that era, you mentioned whether it was Flip Saunders, George Carl, Phil Jackson, who were CBA guys. You were a generation of D-League guys. You, Dave Yeager. Well, Dave was CBA too, mm-hmm. D-League. And you mentioned Brian Gates, who who was really yeah. successful. Quinn to, Snyder. Quinn. Yeah. Chris Finch. And I think it seems like the thing you learn there is your team's changing all the time. Players are in and out. So what you're running today may not fit tomorrow, right? And that it teaches you maybe as much as any place to maybe be creative, think on the fly. You're always dealing with different guys. You build a relationship, guys out, comes in. But as much as it's, it's been a training ground for players, what we're seeing now, that what a training ground it's been for, for coaches in the league. Well, I always thought the, the best experience um, that the D-League gave me was um, – you were continually having to reshape the roles because guys were in, guys were out. You were real, you were having to reshape, um, how the team fit together, how you were motivating the team. And it, it didn't just, you just didn't get guys and you had them from start to finish. And you know, when guys slotted in the role and six months later, they were pretty much in the same role. You were, you were doing that five, six, seven, ten times a year, maybe where you had to take a new group of guys and polish them up and, and, Put them in their, in their spots and figure out who was your scorers and who were your defenders and who was coming off the bench and, and, um, just managing a team, you know, many times during one course of one season. I want to go back to one thing. You mentioned player coach. When you were the player coach, were you the best player on that team? No, I wasn't. Would that have made it easier to be player coach? Um, I think I, I, you know, went there knowing that I was going to have to work very hard as a player coach, right? I was going to have to, you know, when we, when we would run the line drills, I was trying to win them, you know, to set a good example. And I was there early and shot and took shots after practice and all that stuff. And, and, um, I had a guy, Ernest Lee, who actually led the nation at division two. He played at Clark in Atlanta, led the nation in scoring two years in a row. It could really play. And, I got him the ball quite a bit. <laughs> I got him the ball. What was the hardest part of that role? I think initially, like, it was hard. I think I was, like, 22 years old, and I had, a, I had I know I had one guy 35 years old on my team and, you know, several guys in their 30s. That seemed strange to me to right. come in, and, you know, in the first weeks to tell those guys what to do. But, you know, again, they, they – all, all like players want you to do is know what you're doing a little bit and organize them and, and put them in positions to succeed. And those guys weren't any different, really. So would you, you obviously check yourself in and out of the game, but like there's always going to be a roll, somebody's going to yeah. roll their eyes or throw their hands in the air when they get checked out yeah. of a game. But when it's you coming to do it, yeah. was it? I had a bench coach. I had okay. a guy, I had like a bench coach who was, you know, technically the assistant coach, and mm-hmm. I just told him to never sub me and give me the green light all the time. So, 
<laughs> no, it was it was a pretty uh, low budget team, and we had we had uh, you know two Americans on our team, me and Ernest Lee, and and uh, maybe four or five other guys. We we were about seven deep, so there wasn't a whole lot of subbing going on unless there was foul trouble. So it wasn't too bad that way. How many people have you heard from guys? And I think we mentioned Dave Yeager, who came up similarly you that you become the patron saint of the minor league coach and there's guys flailing away all over the world who when they see nick nurse get an nba head coaching job say well hey he's representing me there do you have you felt that in this job um a, a little bit Woj, but i'm i'm again i think there's um i've tried to be you know the other way a little bit i had a couple guys that i that i was watching or tracking myself since I got to the, you know, I've only been in the NBA, what, five, six years now, but there was some guys I thought were really good that I was coaching against and, and some guys I knew or guys that played on a summer league team or guys we coached that got into coaching and, uh, just tried to reach out to those guys, stay in touch. You know, we, we had Kobe Carl was on our, was on our summer league team my, my very first summer in Toronto and he's a, he's a guy, uh, Nate Ryan King played for us at Great Britain who's now coaching Canton and, you know, guys like that, that, that I've tried to stay in touch with a little bit myself because, um, walk that same road, I guess, that they're walking and I just try to encourage them, right? The longer you were away and you were in England, you were there for a decade. Was there a sense of, like, does anyone back there stuff? You, you'd go back in the summer and do some things, but you, was yeah. there a time to go, have I been over here so long that it's going to be hard to get back, or do I need to start moving back to the States? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt it pretty quickly, to be honest, Woj. I, I um, uh, enjoyed it over there immensely, and I kind of kept getting a little bit better jobs and doing more interesting things. I, I you know, I worked, worked a couple places. We won a couple titles. Then we were playing in the Euro Cup and then I got the London Towers job and we were in the Euro League and, you know, so there was, mm-hmm. there was reasons enough to stay, mm-hmm. but I, I knew it wasn't making much of a dent over here because I was trying to come back in the summers and get involved in the, the D League as an assistant and, th- and I, I really couldn't. So I was trying hard, you know, I was going to Long Beach Summer League and, and, uh, Boston Summer League. I was trying to hang out everywhere I could where, where people were that I could, Neat people. And it's hard to be that guy. I see like a lot of coaches have gone through it and they go through it and I see them and I know them and there's an opening somewhere and somebody sees you walking toward them and they know what you're coming for, right? They want to, hey, you might have an assistant or whatever and you, it's hard to be that guy, right? It's hard to, because you have relationships that are real, but then there's also like, well, there's an opening there and I've got to try to get my name in it and, and guys are getting inundated. It's hard to go to those events when you're looking for a job. Yeah, it is. And, and I wasn't, necessarily looking for a job i was again i was trying to coach i was just like i went to long beach one 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 year and just literally hung out the whole time hoping they'd let me coach a free agent team which they eventually did about three summers later i think they finally gave me a team to coach but and then i ended up doing in the usbl you know i just again was trying to learn the nba rules and the nba coaching and that was a quick little 60 or 30 games over two months. That was a pretty good right? league. Pretty good USBL, league for a while, yeah. I used to be around. There was a team in New Haven when I had my first job in Waterbury, and they I remember when the Miami Tropics would come in, and yeah. they had Chris Washburn, Richard Dumas. I mean, Richard Dumas was playing in the USBL. He might have been one of the 10 best talents in the NBA. He had substance abuse issues, obviously, yeah. and playing for us. In the league. He's playing for us, Oklahoma. I mean, yeah. he was. He was playing for he, us. He was an incredible talent. He was right? awesome. 
It was awesome. There was there was some good players in that league, and it was again for us. We were just we were just putting some guys in some vans and driving up to Dodge City and playing a game and turn around coming home, you know. And and uh, and today coming in, we we used to stay out in Pennsylvania and we we do the little tour around the East Coast and play Long Island, Brooklyn, yeah. New Jersey, and we'd stay out there and we'd drive through the Holland Tunnel and. I said, man, I've, I've driven this road a bunch of times in the old uh, Oklahoma Storm van. Right? The, the, you weren't chartering. There were you weren't chartering those days, were you? No. Charter I was driving one van, van, and, yeah. and B Gates was driving the other. Listen, guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Whether it's a knee injury, bad back, or something worse, guys are usually more comfortable with rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. And I'm guilty of it myself. Well, the same is true for erectile dysfunction. Studies show 70% of guys who experience ED don't get treated for it. Thankfully, Roman created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED online. Roman is a one-stop shop where licensed U.S. physicians can diagnose ED and ship medication right to your door. With Roman, there are no waiting rooms, awkward face-to-face conversations, or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. You can handle everything discreetly online. All you have to do is visit GetRoman.com slash Woj. Fill out a brief medical boarding, chat with a doctor, and get FDA-approved ED meds delivered to your door in discreet, unmarked packaging. Guys, go online and get checked by the doctor. Erectile dysfunction is a problem that guys don't tackle, but with Roman, it's really easy, so take care of it. For a free online visit, go to GetRoman.com slash Woj. That's GetRoman.com slash Woj, W-O-J, for a free online visit, GetRoman.com slash Woj. The first real break, Nick, that you get to get into the Mm D-League was driving down the road in Iowa one day. And what happened? Well, yeah, I was was back from England and um, just drove past the brand new Wells Fargo arena that they put in Des Moines and I I didn't had never seen it before and and didn't really know what it was for or who was playing in it or whatever and and uh just literally took the next exit down there at East Sixth and circled back around and I didn't go in but I I pulled up right next to it and and uh dialed the number to talk to the to the general manager and just asked him what was going on there and he said we had a hockey team. They had a AH, AHL team in there and and I said, hey, listen, I'm played at Northern Iowa. I've been overseas. I've been hanging around the the D League, and I hear, you know, I think it's going to take off a little bit. Would you be interested in putting a D League team in your arena? And he said, we'd love to. So I hung that phone up and said, let me, get, you know, let me get back to you. So I hung up and called um, called the D League and and um, right through and said, hey, there's a brand new arena in Des Moines. <laughs> you know, same story. Of blah blah blah. And and they said we'd love to put a team in Des Moines. And then so I I said let me get back to you. So I I had two interested parties and I was like, well, geez, what do I do now? And and I didn't really do anything. I just kind of sat on it, trying to trying to think of what to do next. And uh, I told one other guy, and this guy was an old uh, assistant of mine uh, in England, but he was from from the area, Des Moines. And he said you ought to call Jerry Crawford. And Jerry Crawford was a was a lawyer, big big lawyer in town, also a big political figure, and and just kind of a deal maker. Did a lot of put put together a lot of deals in town. And I called him up, and and he said, "Oh no, not another not another minor league basketball team because they'd had you know like the IBA and the right. IBL and yeah. you know everything coming, come come through, coming yeah, go. coming through." And 
And I said, well, I think the NBA's, you know, getting behind this one. He said, all right, come on down. And, and I said it to him. He said, what do you want? I said, I, I just want to be the head coach and coach the team. And it took us about 18 months, but we, we got it, got it all together. There had to be a part of you going, well, it can't be this easy. I'm going to say it was easy, but like, <laughs> it wasn't easy. Call the, but you call the arena. We'd yeah. love to have a team. Yeah, you yeah. call the league. Yeah. We'd like to have one there. And well, that's the start of it, right? Yeah. It is, and, yeah. and you're right. That was that was pretty fortunate that there was no tenant there really, and that the league was dying to expand. And Des Moines just happened to be like a yeah. perfect kind of AAA type city or minor league type city. Yeah. To get from the D League into the NBA as an assistant, and I think like you've seen guys, Brian Gates won championships, and Dave won championships at that level. You won championships, and some guys have moved up lots of different ways, but it's still. You go from there into the league, and you're starting back at the bottom of a staff, right, generally? Yeah. Was there a belief in the NBA among head coaches there who aren't really paying attention to the D-League that they could get staff from there, that it made – that that's an avenue that makes sense for us? By the time you were in Rio Grande, Iowa and Rio Grande, did it feel like there was no stigma to it that, yeah, I can get a job in the league? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think uh – Especially the head coaches, right? I think, I think it's still different to have, you know, you got a big old NBA staff, right? Eight, nine, ten guys and, and to be able to get a few guys on there that have actually, you know, got five or eight or nine or ten years as a head coach under their belt, I think started to become attractive a little bit. I think it's a different feel, right? To, to just, you know, being an assistant your whole career. How often now do you find like everything is so much bigger, right? The scrutiny's bigger. You could make mistakes all the places you listed. You could make mistakes there and no one noticed. Yeah. But you also did something great. Did you see that play work? Well, there's no camera to record yeah. it. Like that play work, we won the game. It works both ways. It's my favorite part of the D-League was going on the road and losing and not having to talk to anybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But, Never had to explain yourself. But having been in so many situations, because as a head coach, like – in the NBA, like you're faced with, and you know, not just every decision you have to make in a game or with your team, but every day, like guys are coming. At, what time do we want the plane to leave? Where do we want to? There's a million things going on, right? Somebody's agent called the GM. He's not playing, like because if someone doesn't play, somebody's agent's calling, right? And is he going to get? Mad? There's a million things that get thrown at you more than at the other levels, but there's still something right about being in that seat. And knowing I've got to make decisions and having done that all over the map, even if it wasn't at this level, I would imagine that there was value in all of it for you once you got into the seat. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think uh, 20 years or so as a head coach, um, and you're right, you're, you're making a lot of decisions. And, and uh, I think, to be honest with you, that a lot of those levels I was coaching at, I was doing a lot more than coaching because you're promoting and selling tickets and signing out. You know, you're doing the mall. You're doing a lot of things, and it and it's similar to this. Now you're doing other things, you know, um, but it's kind of just uh, a big plate full of things you have to do. And then when you finally get to the basketball, it feels really familiar. Typically, Nick, when somebody gets their first job in the NBA as a head coach – Usually it's a bad team. It's not usually this, right? And, and I think you said it when you got hired, like they gave me the keys to, 
don't know what sports car it was. This one, it was a, I think it was a Lamborghini. Lamborghini, and that. my job's to not like drive this thing into a tree. But I think that's probably for you been the unique thing because you've always been the guy, like you said, I've got to sell tickets and I've got to get people in the stands and I'm the GM and I'm the, all these places. And then you get to a place where we've got championship level talent. We're turning it over to you and just coach this team, which is enough. But it's to me that was right. Probably for you, the unique part is. Not only getting an opportunity, but getting it with what you have in Toronto. Yeah, really fortunate. I mean, I've, I, I almost every day uh, understand how fortunate you know I am to be able to not only coach this group of players because I mean they are they are really awesome to coach. I I got to be honest with you. There's been hardly any uncomfortable moments. I mean, there's some. Well, you got Kyle. Yeah, there's gonna I know, be some. but. But not, but you'll, you'll yeah. You know what you know what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know now now that I'm looking back, it seems like there's been very few. Yeah. They're 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 tuned in. They're, they they want to win. They're uh, anyway. And, and then there's all the other stuff. There's an amazing city. The the fan base is. Um, it's people people down here in the U S. have no idea how, how incredible that fan base is up there in that whole country. Uh, it is it is a different thing. I think. And just everything else. I mean, Bobby and Messiah have been great to work for. Larry, as you know, is a great owner. So there's there's a lot to be thankful for, grateful for, and understand every day that I'm really fortunate. When you're waiting, they're going through a process. So they're interviewing, you know, you know Mike Budenholzer comes in, and he's been a coach of the year in the league. And, you know, you're waiting. They're going to talk to him and, and to talk to some other really good coaches. And when you go in to sit down with Messiah and Bobby – you're selling them on, yeah, like I've done the job in, in different places, different levels, but did you kind of feel the time was my advantage is I know our group better than anybody and I know I know the personnel and I've seen what works and what doesn't work as well. Was that your edge when you walk in with them, especially when like you haven't been the NBA coach of the year? Yeah. You don't you, you don't have that with Butter with another guy that you're trying to compete with for the job. I mean I, I don't really no, at that point, if I knew who else was, you know, coming in there, or if you heard or whatever, I, and I didn't really focus on that. I just, I mean, I all those things you just said were true. Like I did have five years in that locker room with those guys. I knew I knew a lot of what made them tick and maybe what didn't or whatever, and or or these would be the suggestions to try to change or whatever. So I think again, I've said that a lot too. My history there has certainly helped served me well there right it's just you know the five years of being there with these guys and has uh gave me a head start and maybe that did in the interview process too to answer your question you know Kawhi leonard is not it takes time to build a relationship with him and people in san antonio would tell you it took years before they really felt like he'd open up and you didn't have that you had trade happens you know we've got the summer and here comes training camp and we've got to speed up a lot of stuff. How did you think, okay, here's how I walk in the door with him and here's here's how we try to move forward quickly with this thing? Yeah, well I I you know, the first meeting that I knew was taking place wasn't long after I got hired, right? I don't I don't know, maybe a month or I don't know, six weeks or something and and um my game plan kinda was to go in there and, you know, see if he had any questions. And if he didn't say anything at all, then I was just gonna kinda 
give him my interview spiel. <laughs> I just had that one fresh. I just got to tell him who I was and where I came from and where I coached and what I plan on doing. And I just keep on talking, you know, and, and, um, and then I asked him, you know, I just, when they finally kind of cleared the room out and it was me and him, I just asked him, you got any questions? And he said, yeah. You know, he said, who, who do you think is going to start? You know, and, and I said, well, it, there should look like this. And then he said, uh, how do you think you're going to use, you know, so then it was, he started asking quite, and then next mm-hmm. thing you know, I was standing at the board and he was standing there with me and we were drawing plays and, and they were basically knocking the, I don't know how much time went right. by, but they were knocking the door saying, Hey, we got to go. He's got to go, you know, do a physical or do something. Right. So it ended up being a really enjoyable first meeting. Right. Bas- you, basketball wise, you, you, you know, you prepared for the fact he might just sit and stare at you. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, obviously had heard or read the things that that you know he wasn't all that maybe happy about being there, and who who knew what the first meeting was going to go like. But but uh, it was enjoyable, and it's been enjoyable working with the medical staff there, the organization, trying to figure out how you're going to balance his games played, minutes, all that for a head coach. Pretty cumbersome process to ideally you'd like to have him on the court every night. It's not been the case. What's that been like for you, your coaching staff, for even for first teammates? Uh, it's been okay, Woj. I mean, it's like, um, I don't know. I've just never really tried to make too big a deal mm-hmm. out of it. And again, my past kind of training, you know, I, I always kind of joke around that. You know, in a D-League game or a G-League game, you, you actually know who you're going to have about an hour <laughs> before the game starts. So there's not a whole lot of planning. You, you know, you just figure out who it is and you go with it. So, and you know, and you let the disappointment of not having one of your main guys in come and go pretty quickly. And you quickly shift and get excited for the guy who is in that's going to be playing and, you know, try to fit the pieces together and, and get your guys to do the same and and that's all we've tried to do and i think i think um you know as far as keeping the team ticking over and as far as you know the the rest of it we've just tried to take good care of them you know keep them keep them healthy keep them playing keep them feeling good and and with alex mckechnie and and his crew that i think we've done a good job with that here we are almost all the way to the end coaches will always say in the league that you don't really know a player in the league till you coach them was there anything you underestimated about him or even from afar you said, boy, I didn't appreciate how good he is at that or this? What have you learned about him as a coach that maybe you couldn't have known before? Well, that's a very, I think, a very true statement, right? You just don't really get the whole gist of uh, a player until you coach him at any level, really. What have I learned about him? I don't know. I just, thinking back early on, I, I was pretty surprised pretty early about just how flat out good he was like you know and he was shooting and going up and i was i was expecting them all to go in and like i remember like opening night he went like nine for 23 and i thought i said in the press conference afterwards i said geez that felt like it was going to be about 18 out of 23 to me and we're going to probably have a few of those coming just how he was getting those spaces so easily and getting clearance and getting the shot off and things like that so that right away kind of surprised me i think Got to catch the game on the go? No worries. Metro by T-Mobile has you covered. Switch to Metro and get coast-to-coast coverage on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Now you'll catch all the action almost anywhere you go. 
Plus, you'll save a ton over what you're paying with Verizon or the other big guy. Switch to Metro and get on a big network for way less. Coverage may vary, so please see the store for details. Now's the time to score big with Metro. Switch and get on a big network for way less. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. Bringing on Marcus All at the trade deadline and bringing him in, you, you've competed against them in the league and the system. I think most coaches, all coaches in the league, have a, have had a great appreciation for how he plays and and what he and Mike Connolly did together in Memphis. And and you put him in tough situations, like he has started his whole career. He's had nights here where Serge has played some of those minutes, and Mark essentially has said, "Hey, I'm here to contribute, win." That probably could have been harder. Especially a player who might be headed into free agency. He's got an option on his deal. In some ways, has Mark made that one easier for you by how he's handled this thing? Yeah, he's been a 10 out of 10 as far as that. He, I mean, like he's had zero issues with anything. And I've even like tried to preempt, you know, call him, hey, you know, I'm going to start search tomorrow and are you okay? He's like, yeah, to-, you know, everything was always totally okay. Uh, and we did have a long talk about it right when he got there too, because I said, you know, and he said just what you said. He said, I've started my whole career. But he says, let's see how it goes. He said, I probably don't need 35 minutes a night anymore, maybe, maybe you know, 26, 27 or whatever, you know. And, and I said, I just think it's now in this league, it's a little bit more matchup driven once in a while. You know, when there's a pick and pop five, you know, that we've seen with in the past, we've matched up with Kevin Love or Channing Fry or Horford or somebody that – you know, we just don't match up that great with, and maybe it is a better matchup for Surge, and we'll we'll roll with roll with it when we when we see it that way. We'll see. Coaching in the league now and going through what you have. Listen, obviously, you guys want to keep Kawhi, and I think Masai felt the same way that Oklahoma City did with Paul George that we may not be able to get that player in free agency, even if we had space. So we we trade for that player. And then we have a year to sell our program on him. That's the recruitment. It's not, if it's about a one hour meeting on July 2nd, we're not getting him, right? Did you, going into this year, there were a lot of stuff you were preparing to deal with for the first time as a head coach. Any conversations with any of your peers around the league about who went through any similar situations where you said, hey, I'm kind of curious how you handled that with having a player in free agency or the guy just, or did you just say, I'm, I'm going to rely on Messiah and I will talk this through and we'll, we'll do it the way we want to do it? I mean, I think uh, I, I've always kind of felt the same way about players, whether free agents or not, is like my job as the head coach is to make the best decisions for the team first and foremost. And then right underneath that is to try to increase their value in the marketplace, right? And that's got to be like, at this level, we've all, you know, like in, in the D League or the G League, I was always trying to get these guys called up. When my guys were playing for me in England, I was always trying to get them to Spain or mm-hmm. Greece or, you know, trying to get them moved into better jobs. Well, here, these guys are already at the top, so you're just trying to increase their value in the marketplace. And that's, and that just, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make them better. We're trying to put them in situations that, that they have the best season of their career. And if you do that, I think good things happen, and that's all I've really focused on is is our team trying to win, and and not only Kawhi, you know, each of our guys um, having career seasons, and that's that's how we coach them. Do the players in the NBA want anything different from a coach than the guys in Birmingham, England, the Brighton Bears? At the quarter, they all essentially want the same things from a head coach. 
Yeah, I think so. And a lot of those, I know, I know it's, this sounds like really silly, but it's, it's, it's how it feels for me is there is a, there is kind of a locker room pecking order that the NBA has, right? And it's exactly the same as it was in Brighton. There was, there was head honchos and there was star players and there was young guys and there was developing guys and, and we were just, you know, it was far fewer, you know, maybe right. 10 or 11 and, and a lot less money, but it was still a similar shape to it. I think people underestimate, like, you can draw up, you know, there are guys who are great on the board and guys who draw up, who have great schemes and, but the ability in the NBA to have to stand in front of that room and sell yourself, your presence, guys are going to challenge you. Every day you get challenged in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's like probably really overt. Sometimes it's quietly in the corner of a locker room. But is that the biggest thing a head coach in the league has to, especially if you didn't play in the league and you have won a championship somewhere else, and especially when you're newer, that they've got to know like he can command our room. Yeah, I think um, you get a lot of that as an assistant. You know, you're. I I, I know how I felt um, six years ago when I first stood up there in front of those guys. You know, and it's it's like who's this minor league coach guy? You know, what does he know? And I mean, that is pretty much the vibe you're getting from them. And and again, it doesn't change if um, they they want to be coached. They want you to help them. They want you to prepare them. They want you to give them a good game plan. And they're not going to trust you until you do those things. But as soon as you do do those things, then they will. And then it really doesn't matter. I don't think who you are or where you came from or whatever. If they know you know what you're doing and your motives are to help them get better and to help them win maybe the next game, then then you're usually in pretty good shape. It competing in this league as a head coach too, I, I think maybe because of technology now and the way most coaches, if not all, use it and the preparation and the hours guys put in, I'm not sure there's ever been more prepared teams than there are now. And I think, I think organizations are doing a better job at hiring head coaches, right? It's not just that for you guys, like there aren't many nights off in terms of is it strategizing? And then obviously once you get into playoffs, you know the margin is really small. But it seems like the level in which you guys are competing against and the smallest bits of information that can make a difference, and there's so much information available yeah. to you, I don't think there's ever quite been a time like this in the league. Yeah, I think um, I used to talk about the like the like how long a life a play had, you know, like an end-of-game play had a long life in that long life uh, – value has decreased a lot you know you run a you run a really good play at the end of a game and it's everywhere right it's on every tv show or and some somebody out there's putting it on a youtube you know toronto raptors end of game plays and it's you know right there i mean all you gotta do is google it or whatever so you've gotta you gotta move your pieces around a lot more and uh have a lot more in your library i think you're right and how much too is not what you use but deciding the information that you don't need and you're not going to use, is that more important than sometimes what you – and then from that, what do I take to my team? I remember – well, Coach told me he had a GM who was, I think, analytics-driven, obviously, who wanted him to go in and tell his team, I want you guys to take these long end-of-the-quarter shots. Like you got to get those guys to shoot the hat instead of – you know, guys don't want to yeah, do it because yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. want to mess sure. with their percentages. But he's like, look at the numbers. These shots go in and number – 
And the coach said, listen, I agree with you. I wish they would take the half-court shot, the three-quarter court shot. But there's only four or five things I can really talk to my team about at any given time. And if that's one of them, the other one's got to be rebounding yeah. and, and transition <laughs> defense, right? Yeah. That I can't – telling them that's going to be at the expense of something that really matters, right? It's, it's what can I bring to these guys? Yeah, I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. I think there's so much. Um, there's so much analytical data too, and they've got to be able to understand some of it. And you've got to. There's only so much time you can sit there and watch film. You know, all those things need to be taken in consideration because you want them mentally not to get worn down over the course of 82 or physically as well. And you got to pick and choose your topics and your moments. I think, and how long you're gonna keep them in the film room and how thick your scouting report is all those things playoffs are coming in the east sooner i mean they're coming and and listen i know you're not talking you're not thinking about the second round of the playoffs you're going to be you're thinking about the first round and getting through that but i think the league is looking at a potential conference semis in the east of a lot at stake there's a lot of potential raptors future with free agency philadelphia boston you know, Milwaukee's obviously at the, at the top of the conference right now. I think a lot of the future of the league may be determined about how who comes out of this thing standing, right? I mean, I know you're not thinking about all those stakes. You're thinking about the Raptors. But this this has a chance to be a pretty unique spring in this conference. Uh, I agree. And I, and I think that uh, it's become really unique as well because I think the teams that you didn't mention – I know, I know everybody's talking about those Indiana, top four. Indiana, we never talked Indiana, about Indiana, yep. top five, right? Yep. But but even Detroit, mm-hmm. Orlando, Charlotte, Miami, I mean, there's Brooklyn. Yeah. There's, there, yeah. Those teams are You're good. Right. Yep. Those teams are good, and they've given everybody at the top all they've wanted. East or West, uh, the, con- the Eastern Conference has gotten a lot deeper, a lot stronger at the yep. top. It's good. It's good. I, I'm glad. I think. I think for so many years here now, it's just been oh, it's yeah. the East. You know, oh, it's the East. You know, they just people just taking shots at the East. It's nice to have yeah. the conference so strong. I think all the way through. Yeah, and I think the pendulum is especially swung because there's so much great young talent in the East that you see like the there's certainly fewer teams in the West who have those great 22 to 25 year old roster. Dallas is gonna. Like you look at them and you say, okay, they're going to be pretty good. And Sack has got a good young core, right? Like, yeah. and, and they're coming. But, but it seems like while some big free agents went west, teams drafting in the East, and that's how you see the pendulum swing, right, from conferences. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's, I mean, look at Boston's young. I mean, there's, I lose track of how many good good young guys they have, and and um, Philly, obviously, how many again, so many good young guys there, and. Orlando, long and coming, right, too. And so that you're right. There's a lot of, and I guess don't forget about our guys. We got some, you yeah. know, Siakam and OG and Norm and Freddie and those guys. We got some nice young guys, too. You know, one thing Casey used to always say to me about working with Masai and front office there was, we talk about player. As an organization, you guys have drafted very well. You found guys later in the first round. You found second-round picks. You have free agents, different that. As a coach, having a front office that you know puts in the time and you know grinds at film, and then when they bring you guys and say, "Hey, what do you think of this guy?" It makes it easier to know. Like Pascal was not on anybody's radar. I remember going to your first, his first game. 
and you guys are playing in Vancouver two years ago. And I hadn't even paid that much attention to him in the pre-draft process. And you come out and watch him in your first exhibition game against the Warriors, right? I remember just walking up to Masai going, who, who's this guy, right? Like, we're, like this, how was this guy not in the lottery? And you saw it right away as soon as he stepped on the court. That's got to feel pretty good as a coach in this league, right? Well, they've obviously they've done an unbelievable job considering where they've been drafting from. Right, I mean, they've really, uh, and you mentioned too, you get a Norman Powell in the second round, you get a Fred Van Fleet undrafted. I mean, they've, those aren't accidents either, right? Those were guys they were tracking and, and, um, they get a lot, they should get a lot of credit for yeah. having a, having, you know, their track record's been amazing. Yeah, that, right. You can't build depth on a contender if you don't find guys like that. Cause you can't just, you can't go out, cause you're going to overpay in free agency on role players, right? You just typically are. And, your cap can't sustain it, but when you get a Van Vliet who's undrafted and I mentioned um, Norman second round, and you know, and then you re-sign those guys to the kind of contracts you have, that's how when you think of the depth you've had, right? Like that's I don't know if there's another way to do it, right? I mean, that's the blueprint. Yeah. The idea too in Toronto of you know Masai made a decision when he traded for Kawhi and then does the Mark trade that this is a team chasing a championship, right? Like that was the mandate when you walk in the door. Does it change anything of how you have to approach it every day? You just know it's there and that's the reality for all of us. That's what like, hey, listen, that's what we're hired to do here. Yeah, I'm, I guess it's, um, again, I just go back to my, uh, my, my training, luckily enough. I mean, I know I was in smaller leagues, but I got up every day trying to win the whole thing, whether I was in England. I mean, that, I was chasing that championship like every day and and in the d-league we were trying to construct our team so we could so we could win it so it's doesn't feel that much different to me uh you know we're getting up trying to do our daily work but keep the big picture in mind and and um just keep polishing areas we need to polish and um trying to raise the sense of who our team thinks they are every day until we get a chance to fight for it is that thing when, when, when you're trying to find an identity for a team that has changes at the trade deadline and you're in a race against time to say we know who we are we know the roles is that like is that something you chase right into the playoffs you're still always trying to figure out with your team i, I think so i yeah. think you know with us uh right now and, and it may even change a little bit like i've had uh, a couple runs in the in the d league g league right and uh I think both times I lost my MVP player to a call up, you know, right as the playoffs started. So it was a restructure of the team again or, or pull a, uh, all of a sudden a ninth man become a starter and keep the bench unit intact or whatever. And we're still doing a little bit of that. We've got, you know, what I would say maybe 12 or 13 guys that could hit the floor, but realistically it's going to be probably in one series eight or nine and then maybe eight and nine switch in another series or, or whatever. So we're still trying to, you know, tweak who those pieces are going to be. And again, I, I don't know. I like, I like who we are, but I think our guys like who, who we are too. So we just, we just got to go play the games now. Nick, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Coming. I think it was your it's, first first podcast, the debut. It's it's been uh, you and I have known each other a long time, and these are the kind of things that that get surreal for me to be sitting here and on your show here. Yeah, so yeah thanks think, thanks yeah, for having yeah, me. Yeah, I think the first time I called you was about a player named Nate Miles who had come yeah, to one of your from UConn, who had come to one of your tryout dates D- in D League tryouts in Chicago. He was getting ready to come. Yeah, yeah, 
That's what it was. A long time ago. All right. Nick, thank you for doing All this. Right, I appreciate much. it. Thanks. Thanks, bud. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Toronto Raptors coach Nick Nurse. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of the pod wherever you get your shows. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or wherever else you listen to your shows. We'll catch you next time.